And with the book of Deuteronomy, we have the people of Israel standing on the edge of the promised land. And just that close to inheriting all the promises that God had been promising. And Moses now is delivering his final sermons. He's instructing the people so that they will be successful when they go into the land. And uh, the past few chapters, Deuteronomy 14 through 18, really had an amazing foreshadowing as it was describing a holy people. And yet in describing those holy people, there were pictures of when they come into the land, what the priests were going to be like and what the prophets were going to do. And in particular, there was going to be a prophet like Moses that was going to arise, that they would listen to, who would, who would come along. And that became a pivotal passage for Israel's history, that a new Moses would one day come and deliver the people. Instructions were given about it, what the kings would be like, that God would appoint in the land, how they would need to rule with justice and righteousness. And so you see bound in this pictures of what God's kingdom was supposed to look like as the laws were given in preparation for them to enter into the land. We're going to look at chapters 19 through 25 tonight of Deuteronomy, which continues in this vein, this picture of what God's kingdom would look like when they enter into the land. And one of the big pictures that we're ultimately going to see is that God is calling for the people to act righteously in hands and then also in showing love for one another. Big pictures of justice and righteousness. That is then underneath that a picture of love and how they would treat one another. In chapters 19 and 20, and we will only pick some of the the laws along the way as we go. So do not have a panic about me trying to accomplish six chapters and you're thinking, I've got to work in the morning. Um, we, We won't get through all the details of it, but just to give you some of the big framework of the beauty of, of these chapters, chapters 19 and 20 are very much centered around justice. Chapter 19 opens with giving laws regarding uh, accidentally killing another person, the setting up of the cities of refuge. He points out that there was going to be three cities of refuge, and if God blessed them, that they could inherit more land to come than they would need to then establish six cities in total that would be places to go for those who accidentally killed another person. Chapter 19, verse 14 describes then how the boundary markers and property lines should not be moved, not to be cheating one another. And then in verses 15 through 21 of that chapter, there were laws concerning witnesses. No one was to be able to be convicted of a crime with only one single witness. There had to be two or three eyewitnesses to confirm that. I think it's important to underscore, he's talking about witnesses, not one person telling everybody what happened, but there were two or three witnesses. It's kind of shameful in our court system today. It can be awful lot of people hearing stories rather than were there two people who witnessed the crime under God's economy. That's what had to happen before there could be any conviction. And so justice is being described here in that in that case. Witnesses must be must be there to be able to convict. 
Chapter 20 gives a bunch of rules for warfare, which I think some of these rules are fairly fascinating. We don't have the time to go into all of them, but some of the things that are particularly interesting is God starts off chapter 20 by just saying, you don't need to fear when you go in there because I'm going to fight for you. It's going to be fine. We've seen God say that many times in the book of Deuteronomy is that you aren't going to have to depend upon yourself. In fact, we see that it was such the case that God made all kinds of allowances for the those who would not have to go into a, into battle when they would come into the land, which would include if you just bought a house, if you had planted a vineyard that had not been harvested, those who were betrothed to get married, and those who were just flat out too afraid to go, all did not have to go into battle, as are described in chapter 20. So all kinds of, of, of ways to, if you will, get out of it, if you would say, but things that were given as an allowance then for not going into battle. Another thing that was particularly interesting about the rules of warfare is that God says, when you were to come up against a city, you're to offer them peace, and they are to hopefully accept the terms of the agreement, so that there would not have to be any bloodshed, and you'd have this agreeable settlement in that. But then he gives a specific rule about that. That was not to be the case for the cities in Canaan. If they were ever went up against other nations, then you need to offer terms of peace because God is with you. And so warfare wouldn't have to happen. They could just accept the terms of peace. However, we saw in Deuteronomy, as well as all the way back in Genesis, what was told of Abraham, when it comes to the land of Canaan, this is judgment on the people. And so terms of peace are directly not to be offered to these cities because this is God's judgment against them. And so those details are laid out ultimately in chapter 20. So you see in this section, you are just getting a picture of a display of God's justice. I want my people to act righteously, to be just in their dealings and to act appropriately, not only with the outsiders, but also with one another. Chapters 21 through 23, and I hope by giving you a framework for some of these laws, it will help make it easier when you study them for yourselves, or if you're ever doing the reading through your Bible, and you made it through Leviticus, and you sometimes come into all these laws, and you're trying to sort out, why are we getting all of these laws? That you can categorize these, and that there is a message behind them. And in these chapters, in Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, What you are ultimately seeing is God laying out a variety of protections for the people. How to handle unsolved murders at the beginning of chapter 21. The rules about marrying captives. How to handle the rights of the firstborn. There are all kinds of directions that God is giving so that there won't be confusion and there won't be issues and problems when they come into the land. Here are the rules and here are the standards of justice and righteousness when you come into the land so that you know what to do when these various circumstances arise. And I think it's very important to underline that. That what you are seeing in these chapters is God describing scenarios, circumstances, situations, that if they arise, here's what you're supposed to do about that. Here's how you handle that. So when it came to the firstborn, here's how you handle that. I think there's a couple of things that really are reflective about the mind of God in this that I want to to zero in on tonight. In chapter 21 and verse 18, you get rules for what to do with a rebellious son. like our culture to listen to these rules that God gave. <laughs> listen to this. In chapter 21, verse 18, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son 
who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them. Then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him to out to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, this is our son and he is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst and all Israel shall hear and fear. There you go. That's how God handled that. <laughs> Fascinating how God lays that out. Here's the, the descriptions of that. And I wanted to just make a couple observations with that. I think it's important to observe that rebellious children in the eyes of God are not acceptable or cute to God. That's not how he looked at that. And it didn't matter what age it was. It didn't matter even say, well, you know, teenagers are teenagers or boys will be boys or anything like that. Here is a, an important description that we have seen all the way back, especially in numbers. And we'll highlight it here again. Rebellion is not acceptable to God. We've seen that point underscored again and again. And here it is underscored. Here the child will not listen to father or mother. Rebellion is not acceptable to God. And this was the prescription that was given, that children were then to obey their parents. And if the child was unwilling to do that, they were brought before the elders and the elders of the city would stone them for their rebellion. I think there is something else that I think is worth observing here. Uh, and, and I hope you caught it in reading it. Do you notice that the text says that the parents were disciplining the child and the child still refused to listen? And I think that's an important thing to express right here. As I think sometimes we've created this false construct that if you teach your children in God's ways, there is just absolutely no way possible you will ever have a rebellious son. And here is a picture of It says the mother and the father are disciplining them and they will not listen to what the mother and the father are saying. And here's what's to do about that. So a couple of things I wanted to state with that. I think it's important to note that it is certainly true that as parents, we can bring up rebellious kids by our own terrible, faulty parenting. There's no doubt about that. There's seen that in the Proverbs for sure. We see that picture. But by the same point, I think it's important for us to recognize that it is possible for you to teach your children, to discipline your children, and the child still choose to be rebellious. And that's ultimately the situation that's arising here. The parents are saying, we've done all we can with this child. We have disciplined them. We have taught them. We have instructed them. We've trained them. And they are still rebellious. They're still a glutton and still a drunkard. So what do you do? Well, there's the description that's given to it. Obviously, the parents should not be saying, well, we really failed, but kill the kid anyway. It's clearly saying we, we can't control the child. So I think it's important to see that. And I think it's useful to see that, that there is such a scenario. And we need to realize that that could also be the case. And I think it's interesting that even God lays out the prescription of what to do with, with that scenario. You'll notice in chapter 22, we'll come back to 21 a little bit later on. Uh, but in chapter 22... I think what you would call this is what we would call this today is the Good Samaritan rule. Listen to it in chapter 22, verse 1. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you or and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. 
And you shall do the same with his donkey or with his garment or with any lost thing of your brother's which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift it up again. So we'd probably call that the Good Samaritan rule idea is that if you see someone in need, you help them. You do something about that. I also find it interesting. I should have learned this in grade school. God did not approve of finders keepers, which is what he says right there. Just because you found it doesn't mean you get to keep it. You can hold on to it until the person is looking for it. You can now give it to him and go, oh, it was you that was looking for this. So really interesting, even here, as they come into the land, here's what that looks like. You see somebody who needs help, you help them do that. You see their donkey go astray, don't ignore it. You don't look the other way and go, oh, well, really stinks for them that's too bad you go grab and help them and if they see this lost property and you don't even know who it belongs to hold it until you can return it to its rightful owner so pictures even even of that which again becomes interesting when jesus tells a parable of that kind of idea uh plays into that very well i found verse five to be very important probably more because of our culture today than anything else so let's talk about verse five it says a woman shall not wear a man's garment Nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Very simple, very succinct, very straightforward. The point to see here is God intended the maintaining of gender distinctions. Gender distinctions are to be maintained. In particular, I would like to underscore something to even consider this. By God saying that a man is not to wear a woman's cloak or that a woman is not to wear a man's garment means that there is such a thing as men's clothes and women's clothes. And that seems somewhat obvious, except apparently not anymore. And so that's why I want to show that, is that even before God, he recognizes there is gender distinction. And there are things that you wear that can indicate being male or female. And we live in a time right now that is doing everything in its power to erase gender distinction at all. And I want us to recognize that that does not fly with God. That's not part of God's economy. He intended a separation of male and female and even gave a direction that said, I don't want you to try to look like each other. You have men's clothes, you have women's clothes, and to not then... Uh, change that over as verse 5 describes. So again, these are pictures of how God was instructing his people as they come into the land. This is the mind of God. This is what God's economy would look like. Really, the rest of chapter 22, tons and tons of rules about avoiding sexual immorality. We have many pictures given to us. A person was stoned for sexual immorality. In verse 20, you were not to make false accusations about this regarding your spouse. In verses 13 through 18, that was a very serious offense if you made such an accusation and were found incorrect about uh, accusing your spouse of cheating. You see the death penalty given for adultery in verse 22. You see that also for uh, violence one who's betrothed or raping a betrothed person penalties are given for that for raping a virgin no incest is allowed all kinds of rules that continue to show god intends sexual purity and that's what is being laid out in all of those verses that god desires that there is not to be sexual relations before marriage and there's supposed to be purity in the marriage relationship uh, once they are are married Chapters 23, 24, and 25 
really just some big pictures about being a holy people. This is something that that God has spent a lot of time talking to the people about. If you think about how God comes down to the people back in Exodus chapter 20 and starts describing laws of what they need to be like. And then you consider all of the book of Leviticus, which I've described as the book of holiness, is all about the people being holy. And then the book of Numbers is showing condemnation for when they are not behaving in a holy way, but are being rebellious to the laws of God. God has spent many books in in regards to these generations, decades of time, trying to communicate to them, you are God's holy people, and that means you must live differently. And that's what these laws are all about. These are things that would have caused them to be distinct. This would have made them different from among the pagans and among the Canaanite religion of where they were about to enter. It's why God did not tolerate any idolatries. You were to be different, to not look like the world. I, I, I find it such a challenge that we have in our desire to fit in with the culture of the world that we have such a great tendency to adopt the values and the systems and the standards that our culture has. And we have to recognize that as God's holy people, we're actually called to be different. We have such a a difficulty because like, well, shouldn't we match what they're doing and shouldn't we match what they're thinking? And should we really be so different when it comes to all of these rules? But then you notice what he does in Deuteronomy there, all of these sexual immorality rules from verse 13, pretty much to the end of the chapter is tons and tons of laws about that. Well, what's he doing? You're going to be different than everybody else. You're going to be completely different than how the pagans operate when it comes to sexual morality, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to these kinds of things. And that's what you see God, I think, intending over and over again by these laws is here's how you will be distinct is by keeping these kinds of rules. And I hope that we would perceive God's laws in this way when we think about what God has called for us to do. So much of what God has called us to do is to help us be distinct from the world, that he wants us to be different. And that's why these rules are given. Chapter 24. Um, Probably an interestingly controversial text, but let's go ahead and read it. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, then he finds, if if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, and the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that would be an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. There's a whole lot of things that have been done with Deuteronomy 24, and I think it's important to observe a few things about Deuteronomy 24. First of all, we have to see that there is nothing here that is God's approval of the scenario. 
So I, when we started chapter 21, I said, what God is doing is describing, here are the possible things that could happen when you come into the land. And so to say, like, for example, if you... Uh, rape a, a virgin in the field there were all kinds of these consequences that would have to happen you'd have to pay a fine to the family and then you'd have to marry her and never divorce her so does that mean that scenario is acceptable before god no of course not so it's describing here's what you do if the circumstance arises this falls in the same category with everything else and that's why you see this if then or when then if this circumstance arises then here are the things that that unfold then here's what you're supposed to do about that i believe it's important to underscore that because that's exactly what jesus is observing in matthew 19 if you remember when jesus and they ask him is it lawful to divorce for any reason And Jesus' answer is essentially no from the beginning. God made them male and female. And what God's joined together, let not man separate. Period. End of story in verse 6. And then the Pharisees go, well, wait a minute. Why did Moses give a certificate of divorce? Which seems to be reaching to this, where we see this certificate of divorce happening. And you remember his answer? Because of your hardness of heart. And that again seems to underscore the idea that there is nothing being approved by what is going on here, but indicating a scenario that existed or would exist that was a, was given then to be able not to allow people to divorce, but is clearly protecting the women from further defilement. In fact, that's what you see that in verse 4 uh, when it says there she may not be taken again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that would be an abomination. It's hard to recreate exactly what may have been happening back then. But one gets the sense that the idea may have been something akin to this. As you say, well, I'm kind of tired of my wife, so I give her a divorce and send her away. She goes and marries somebody else because that's the only way she's going to be provided for in that society. It's not like you had Social Security and you got a job somewhere. That's not how that worked back then. So she marries someone else. And now he goes, you know what? I really don't want to be with her anymore. And the first husband goes, you know, she wasn't really all that bad after all. I think maybe I'll have her back. And God's going, no, that's not what we're doing around here. This is a defiling that is happening. It is putting an end to that. And that's what you see, I believe, the idea behind this contingency that's being given is that it's not allowing divorce for any reason. That's what Jesus is saying. That's not what the intent of that was. The hardness of your hearts, what you were doing at that time, caused there to have to be a law to be put in. We can't ever have anything in any particular scripture directly violate or go against what another scripture would say. Here is Deuteronomy 24. That can't go against what Jesus does in Matthew 19 where he says, you know, from the beginning, God made them male and female. What's the implication? You're not supposed to ever divorce. Divorce was never supposed to be an option. And unfortunately, what it seems that many of the teachers of the law had done had read this and turned it into a way to be able to uh, divorce for essentially anything that was unseemly or indecent or unclean and would make that be just about anything we also have to remember what malachi described in that and malachi as the prophet comes along and he proclaims the hardness of the hearts of the people as well he calls divorce hatred and violence and faithlessness or treachery depending on the translation 
So these are, again, how God perceives divorce, is that divorce is not to happen. It is not in God's marriage plan. And there is a seriousness that is to exist in marriage, that which is supposed to be for life. Thus, Jesus would say, what God joined together, we don't separate. That's not for us to do. We are supposed to stay together no matter what. And so that's God's intent. I find it unfortunate for a circumstance that is very difficult to discern as it is that Deuteronomy 24 has been used for all kinds of allowances when Jesus comes along and says that was never what that was supposed to be in the first place. I don't know why we would ever want to use a passage like Deuteronomy 24 when Jesus says that's there for hard-hearted people. (laughs) That's not where we want to run to and go, well, this is a good place to to find our, our legislation. God gave this not as an approval, but a description of if these circumstances arise, here's what you need to do about that, just as like all of the other laws that are given in this very section. All right, with the remainder of my time, and it blows me away how fast time goes, go back to Deuteronomy 21, because there is a big New Testament message that I want to focus on that comes out of this. I I skipped over it, and now I want to zero in on it. Deuteronomy 21, and look at verse 22. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. I want you to see some of the rules that are given here in regards to a crime that is committed, that is to be punished by death, the punishment that is to be carried out by hanging this person on a tree. And then rules are given to that. Once the person is hung on a tree, that body is not to remain overnight, but is to be buried the same day because it would be a defilement to the land if the body is left overnight. But in particular, very important in the middle of verse 23, that a person who is executed in this fashion was to be considered cursed by God. That is the big deal. Somebody who commits an offense like this, that is so heinous to such a degree, to that kind of crime, that they're hung on a tree, here's how you are to perceive that individual as cursed of God. They are terrible, terrible people. Now, what I think is particularly interesting about this passage is if you will go over to Galatians chapter 3, you will notice that the Apostle Paul uses this passage and he applies it to Jesus. Galatians chapter 3. And let's begin in verse 10. Galatians 3 verse 10 reads, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Curses everyone who is hanged on a tree. There's our quotation. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, this is an amazing thing. 
Because in Deuteronomy, we are in a section about justice and righteousness. And here are the laws that are to be followed and prescribed so that people are protected and righteousness is accomplished. And I hope that you would consider the great irony that here we have one that this is applied to that would have been considered the grossest injustice of all of history is that the perfect son of God is hung on a tree. A passage that is used for capital offenses, for the heinous of crimes. Someone who would do such a thing, you hang them on a tree. They are accursed of God. The one who lived a perfect life in whom there was no deceit, no defilement, who did absolutely nothing wrong, is executed in that fashion. In a passage that's all about justice and all about righteousness and protecting the innocent, and maintaining people from being defiled. whole section about that. From this very passage, we see this idea. And this is really the heart of what Isaiah is prophesying when he says, like in Isaiah 53, that he was despised and rejected by people. He was despised and we did not value him. We did not esteem him. His death and the way he dies would have caused every single person who saw it to consider him cursed of God. In fact, that's the essence of what you see the Jewish leaders saying at the very foot of the cross. For example, Matthew 27, 42, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. You see what their reviling is? You say God desires you. You say you're son of God. You say you are in relationship with God. You say you're able to save others. You're cursed of God. Look at you. You are Deuteronomy 21. You are clearly cursed of God. How could it be possible for you to say you are son of God, that you're in relationship with God, that you're in favor with God because your death signifies, it symbolizes that you're cursed of God. It's ultimately what the reviling is all about. This is the picture. And what the, what the Apostle Paul does in the book of Galatians is staggering. Is The picture is that Jesus endured a curse so that we do not have to endure the curse that we deserve. The curse that we deserve is in verse 10. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That's our curse. Isn't it amazing that there's only one person who abided by all the things written in the book of the law and did them? And he suffers and dies in the way as if he had not. As if he had violated the law. And as if he were a criminal deserving of a capital punishment like this. 
And I want you to see that this is the power of the cross, even though this is not my Sunday morning cross theme that's next week. It's sitting right here, so I have to take it because it's beautiful. This is the power of the cross right here. As you'll notice that verse 14 says it, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. It is his death on the cross that enables us to access the promises of God. Everything that God had promised to Abraham and your descendants, the world's going to be blessed. It's going to come through Abraham and his children. And notice how it's described that in verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham would come to who? Gentiles. How? Because he dies a death. That makes him appear to be of cursed of God, makes him appear to be scorned of the world, makes him appear to be as if he is a violator of the vilest of violators. When in fact, it's the grossest injustice of all human history. The one person in whom there was no deceit, the one person in whom there was no error and one person who should have been able to avoid all of that willingly gives himself up on the cross. And I'll just end by saying this then. The reason why the cross should be everything to us. We have the words like in our song, Jesus keep me near the cross and things like that. The reason why the cross should be everything to us is because passages like this tell us that it's only through the cross that we're able to access the promises of God. It is only through hanging on a tree, through death on the cross, that it makes it possible for us to access all that God was promising of being his children, of enjoying relationship, of having salvation, of having true life. And it's because of that that we strive to live as the holy people of God. It's because of the cross we strive to love our neighbors. It's because of the cross that we try to live righteously. It's because of the cross that we do good by others. It's because of the cross that we do justice toward others. It's because of the cross that we display the love of God to others. That's the reason why we follow God's laws of righteousness, love, and holiness. It's because of the cross. In Deuteronomy, God said, It's because you were slaves in Egypt and because I brought you out of a by a mighty hand that you are to be a holy people and love one another and do good by one another and do all of those things. And God comes along and ups the ante and says, now it's the cross. You were slaves of sin and the cross has set you free. And now that's why you live and do good and be just and do right and help those who are in need of help. And you do those things because that's What the cross does is it changes everything about who we are. That's what Deuteronomy is showing these people is this huge message of how God cared for his people and desired justice and righteousness and loving one another as they would live in the land that would just be on the other side of the Jordan. Here we are as kingdom citizens belonging to the great kingdom of Christ. and We are called to live likewise. And we're going to sing a song that's an invitation asking for you, if we can help you to turn away from sins, to live in the way that God has called you to live, to live a life of holiness and righteousness, 
to turn away from sin, to live a life of love of God and love toward one another. We're calling for you to do that today. Turn away from sin. Turn away from a life of self, choosing to do what we want to do, rather serving the living God. Can we help you do that? Won't you come now while we stand and while we sing?